and we're back. Welcome to our continuation of this week's When They Was Fab. I'm Ed Chin. John Stone and Kid O'Toole are also here as we are continuing our review of McCartney 321. All right, so we move on to uh, episode four, which starts in with the backwards guitar, which is kind of kind of neat. It's a little bit different from you know the various isolations we've gotten before. Yes, I think it uses the line... You know, naughty boys in the studio. They're all that they get to the fool around in the studio like nobody else. They had made enough money for EMI by that point in time. I, I guess it was allowed. That's a recurring theme throughout these episodes, is you know, and this is a point he's made before, but it's worth repeating that they never wanted to get bored. They never wanted to do the same thing twice. And so the studio was like their laboratory. And they were really fearless. Where do you think the confidence to ask for that came from? I think just gradually with the success of the Beatles records. Yeah. We started to have a bit more freedom and allow ourselves more freedom when George Martin allowed us more freedom. So we could then kind of push the envelope a bit. Yep. Absolutely. So then, then they talk about Nowhere Man. Now, he's, he's told this story a couple of times. It's not quite well-worn, but he, uh, he told it to Lewison, and he, he tells it here again, and I still don't quite understand what he's saying. Uh, as, as someone who's done some engineering, uh, can you explain what is Paul talking about? Okay, you, you, you turn the treble all the way up on the guitar. You put it into the board. You turn the first pot on the board all the way up. Then what is he doing? Then he takes that signal and moves it to another track, another part of the board, and then turns that treble up. And so, okay, he, so talk, and he talks about doing that several times. So by the end, you get that. How many of those pots would there be on the board? I mean, it's a four-track machine. Well, it has to do with the microphones going in. Not Ah, okay. So they would just, they would just route the signal through the microphone, right? the next they, microphone. Okay. And, and then get that real cellophane kind of sound crisp is it audible after a certain number of times or i mean obviously they got unaffect but i'm just wondering if they had to do it as many times as they did or if it may have only been one or two you know it's hard to say because 
you'd have to hear what the effect was in the first place. And then, you know, you have to stop somewhere. And it may have been with the engineer going, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) With an English accent. (laughs) That's what we learned about nowhere, man. And uh, again, they go to the circus crone footage. And and again, the harmonizing when they can't hear each other, it's like, wow. Yeah. The part that I was always zero in on is George. George is actually singing the low part. And Mm -hmm. it's hard to hear in a trio like that. Yeah, I mean, they didn't have earpieces or anything. No, no. He he does it. He holds on to it. It'd be real easy to go sharp or flat. Well, they all had perfect pitch. At least I think they did. He's a Then that moves on to to Maxwell's Silver Hammer, uh, another one which is you know you would have think that Paul would have uh, demurred on talking about uh, Maxwell given all of the uh, <laughs> controversy, hate all of the controversy and and hate from uh, both John and George and to a lesser extent Ringo. Although Ringo has also said we we played that bloody song forever. Yeah, I think uh, it was funny that that Ruben kind of marvels. That Paul played so many instruments on that on that track. <laughs> it's like, well, nobody else would play. <laughs> so I think you played a lot of the instruments on this one. It drove everyone nuts with that song, <laughs> right? So he's the only one that would play on it. <laughs> he also, uh, when he talks about the Moog, forgets that George had bought one, and that was why that Moog was there, not because Robert Moog just happened to show up at EMI. Well, electronic sounds. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that was struck me as funny. And, and again, uh, maybe he doesn't know the whole story. It may be. Uh, Living his own life. <laughs> uh, Rick Rubin is right. The bass doesn't sound like a bass at all, really. Mm-mm. No. Uh, on that isolated track. It's like. No. I don't know and, if it's a tuba, but it certainly has qualities of a tuba. Yeah. And over the course of this, it. You'll you hear how many different ways McCartney would record his bass. All alone with a test tube. First thing that's fascinating about it is that that sounds really more like a tuba. Horn, yeah, tuba. Yeah, I think I was trying to get that effect. How do you, how do, you do that? Well, you play it very short. Boom. You don't let the bass ring on. Boom. Boom. Which tuba? Yeah. It really sounds like that. I mean, yeah. it's, it's remarkable. Well, I think, you know, the character of the song is kind of yeah. a parody. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, and I, I thought that was a good insight. And and that's where Rick Rubin also shines in, in the series where he, you know, when they do the isolations that he really points out how about the different sounds. Right. And yeah, I, I thought that too. I was like, yeah, that, that bass does sound more like a, you know, like a horn or something. I mean, yeah. absolutely it does. Yeah, it does have that. It's not exactly like a tuba, but it does have some of that, that quality to it. Yeah, and he does point out, uh, Rick Rubin, at, at various points about how they were able to make their instruments sound like different things. And of course, you know, Rick Rubin being a producer and all that, I mean, he has quality, the unique qualities and yeah. he's able to do that. So that's where he can do that better than most interviewers could, right. uh, could do it. He hears things and, and knows what it would take to create that rather than, you know, exactly. Um, 
particularly in the mid '60s, when things weren't available like they are now. You couldn't just press a button. Yeah, I mean, right. the fact so, that yeah. it talks about an oscillator and like that was a unique thing. Now, studios are full of electronics. Back then, exactly. They yeah, so it was particularly impressive back then to be able to manipulate sound like yes. that. And, and clearly they do with all the different bass tracks. Uh, so Paul then brings up the, the Mal Evans and uh, bringing in an anvil story, which we can, which we can see and let it be. Although I, I like his description of, of Mal. You know, he was quite a hefty fellow there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've always felt sorry for Mal because he had to bring one to Twickenham and then Lugging mm-hmm. this anvil around, damn it. I was on roadie, Mal. We had a we wanted the sound of an anvil. Yeah. So you know now you sort of drive it up. But then you had to get an anvil. So we got this pretty great blacksmith's anvil and he hit it with a hammer. Hard to get it in there. Yeah. They're heavy. It's a big boy. Oh, they're really heavy. It's a big boy. Yeah. Uh, and then, then also a little bit about the piano. It's like, well, that doesn't sound like me. He, I don't play the arpeggios like that. That's got to be George Martin. <laughs> right. I, I, I first really became aware of that, his keyboard approach, I think, when I heard an early tracking of Your Brother Should Know. And his keyboard part is just simple chords. It's not anything. And you can hear, you know, how he builds things up. But he's not a fancy piano player at all. And so, you know, he leaves those things to those people who could do it. So this really brings us into a little George Martin section of the show. uh, Because next we get A Hard Day's Night. And he talks about the opening chord. Although he doesn't tell us what the opening chord is. He the mystery that we've had for for decades. No, I'm not going to give you the answer. <laughs> well, there, there's a YouTube video that will tell you how that chord yeah, was created. The, the, yep. Other people have figured it out, but it still took 40 years. To... <laughs> <laughs> right. But it, but what he does say is is interesting that that part of the reason why that opening chord came about was because George was thinking cinematically. Right, because it has nothing to do with the song. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, it's not part of the song somewhere. It's just the beginning. And that was a great, great concept. Yeah, I mean, it was thinking cinematically, but it was. I think it was also a way to make themselves stand out from everything else that was on the radio at the time. I mean, it was a way to get your attention immediately, and that chord sure as hell does. But it does fit the film perfectly. I yes. mean, it's it's just that that chord just crashes in and, and uh, you know, and it is. It's like it's this burst of energy. And in the film, I mean, the Beatles are running right at you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in that opening scene, it's perfect. It was an absolutely genius move. We have Beatles radio on Sirius. And every time that chord hits, my heart just goes, yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but that story that Paul tells makes me wonder whether the idea for it was George Martin's. They may have come up with it. But he's the one who said, we, we need something here. Yeah. Then the story which he had told in the, 
the George Martin doc on the BBC, the producer documentary about the sound that only dogs can hear on Pepper. And yeah. uh, and then he also, he also mentions that uh, George would talk about his time in the war. It's like, well, but so did you fly the plane? No. <laughs> Were you the navigator? No. So, you know, he was kind of producing even back then. I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, observation. Right. Well, I have a, a kind of a personal story in that um, back when the uh, Sergeant Pepper box came out, uh, I was, of course, playing it. And my son, who at the time I think was seven, uh, was in the living room and I'm playing it. I'm in the other room and it, it plays that part. And my son goes, What is that? <laughs> And I was like, what? What is that noise? And so, you know, he didn't know anything about that. So clearly he heard something. So Wow. So that either means that's not quite true or that my son is a dog. Well, <laughs> you, it's in your teens, particularly when you start listening to loud music that you lose. <laughs> well, for sure. You lose those hairs. <laughs> yep. But... Most people, by the time they're 30, can no longer hear. I could hear it up until my early 20s. I could still hear it. Could you hear it? I could hear that there was something which was not si- silence and was not – that there was a tone there. And, you know, Maybe I couldn't hear it in all its fidelity, but – Air pressure. <laughs> I, I, it was enough that I could detect that there was a sound there. Right. Yeah. So, yeah I, I've, I've never heard it. I've I mean, never heard it. I, I mean, clearly I've heard it. <laughs> I just haven't heard it. I mean, it's, it's just a dog whistle is all it really is. It's just a, yeah. it's just a tone. A high pitch, yeah. A high-pitched tone, yeah. So we move on from there into Tomorrow Never Knows. Yeah. He talks about making the tape loops, mm-hmm. and that's kind of cool. A little button called Superimpose. <laughs> right. And I don't know if some of the people listening to this might know, but there's a guitarist named Robert Fripp who mm-hmm. created um, what they – Term Frippertronics, which is basically what he's talking about, creating a tape loop and superimposing things on top. Fripp took it to, and you know, a different level, but it's basically a, a loop of tape that just goes around and around, and you can superimpose a new idea on top until you just get this saturated sound of something. Rick Rubin's comment about randomness and that you have to stop it at the right time, that was new to me. I, I... There's always a random aspect to this because you don't yeah. really have control of the yeah. rhythm. Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit of an art because you've got to know when to stop. Yeah. You've got to go down, 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 And, you know, you've got to sort of stop soon. Because otherwise you wiped out those two original ideas. Yeah. But when you set it against the band. Sounds like it's played. Yeah. Obviously I knew about making the tape loops, but I hadn't ever really considered that. Yeah. You have to stop it exactly at the right point. Yeah, and it's also interesting that the song was meant to be one chord all the way through. And it yeah. is in a way, but there's a point where there's a, a shift. And I didn't realize that that was a tape loop for a long time, that it wasn't deliberate, get a or organ or, or something. 
to change that chord. But they, yeah, you know, that's what Paul says. And yeah. then we put that other chord in there. Yeah. Yeah, but the, the drone chord, you know, was still going. It just really drives home just how the song was so ahead of its time. Yeah. And it's so difficult to do. I mean, today, obviously, with sampling and all, I mean, this wouldn't be that big a deal. But I mean, consider this. I mean, it's 66. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this was groundbreaking stuff. I oh, mean, yeah. Just a. Just phenomenal. And I think, was this where they mentioned uh, John Cage? I'm trying to remember if this is where they... Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I believe so. I, you know, and, and by the way, this is another part of the series that I really liked was uh, when they would bring in clips from, you know, the different artists that, you know, the Beatles drew from and different influences. That was, you know, that was a great touch to bring in. And, and like that John Cage clip, which I've seen on, on YouTube before. Um, and, uh, you know, I just think it really, you know, helped to deepen understanding. And that was a, a good example. And they played, I think, some of the you know, isolated uh, loops and, and so forth. And this is one of my all-time favorite Beatles songs, so I'm a little prejudiced here. But uh, <laughs> but I, I, I mean, it, it's just a masterpiece, and I, I think this just drives home how difficult uh, this is what was to do and, and just how ahead of its time it was. Yeah, it amazes me, I mean, totally, that you go from – you know, a few years back, and they're doing two chord "Love Me Do," <laughs> and <laughs> and then you know, a few years later, they're doing this thing that is massive. I, you know, as a kid, I would turn that thing up and just be enveloped by this radical sound. Wow! I knew everything coming up. The little piano ditty at the end, as it fades out, first time the piano wow. appears. I agree. It's a great song. Amazing. And then they play a bit of the anthology version, the, what I refer to as the washing machine version. I'm not sure why they did that. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I think Ruben says it, it's on the way to creating the sound. So it's like, this is where you started and this is where you ended. The beginning one has, as you call that washing machine sound. The drum beat is different. Lennon's vocals the same. So that might have been on the way to finding I the sound. I think it must have been, yeah. And would that have happened relatively quickly? Like you'd have played it this yeah, first way? I think so, you know. Um, and maybe that's the point. You know, they're, they're using that as a way to bring Ringo into the story because we, we move on from talking about George Martin for a bit to talking about Ringo for a bit. Yeah, and his abilities. If he could play what I say. Yeah, I like that little tidbit. Me, John, and George were on the front line singing, as we usually were. And now behind us, we had this guy that we'd never played with before. And I remember the moment when he started playing and we, we started playing. I think it was like, Ray Charles, what did I say? On the height, on the height. Yeah. Not many drummers could do that. Yeah. Oh, he could play like that. Yeah. So he's like, wow. It's a little bit clear, you had to go... It was a little uh, difficult to do, but Ringo nailed it. So, yeah, Ringo nailed it. 
And I remember the moment, just standing there and looking at John, and then looking at George, and the look on our faces was all like, what, what is this? And I, that was the moment, you know, that was the beginning, really, of the Beatles. Anyway. Paul had used that when he uh, in, inducted Ringo into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. A lot of this is actually the same as that speech, but... Uh, mm. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he demonstrates it here with the with the high hats and it's like and Ringo could do that. Pete Best damn sure couldn't. Well, I, no. and, I, and I have played with a bunch of drummers and know the difference between the drummer who can keep a beat, you know, or who's there, and a drummer who can really bring the band alive. And the difference is incredible. And so, you know, I, I can feel when he says they got there and they start in and, and they're all looking at each other like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, that Ringo elevated them, lifted them up. Well, and they chose the exact perfect clip. I mean, Ringo's a madman on Sar standing there from DC, you know? Yeah. And that's like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when he came along, they became the Beatles. I mean, in my opinion, I mean, just, you know, he did bring them together and, you know, just gave them power. I mean, just no, no doubt about it. Yeah. And, and I hadn't ever heard the slight bread quip and it's like, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why, but I like yeah. that. Slight bread. Yep. <laughs> slight bread. <laughs> <laughs> the, then we go in to get back and he talks about how Ringo really changed the song by bringing in this military beat to it. And I can see that. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, at that time, everybody was getting into their thing, you know, growing into their potential. You look at that drum beat, you look at Come Together. I mean, Ringo was just amazing at that point. Yeah, I, I thought that was great to describe it when they say got a military thing going. I never thought of that, you know, opening beat as military, but it is. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a good description. And yeah, he would just he was a master at doing these uh, you know, also just these these fills and and these, you know, and these distinctive riffs that like you just said come together. I mean, you almost do, don't need the rest of the the music to identify right. come together. As soon as you yeah. hear that drum pattern, you know what the song is. Uh, you know, without getting into that the whole debate, you know, uh, someone once said uh Listen, you know, you listen to Ringo Starr's catalog. Now think of Charlie Watts' catalog. Played on some great stuff, but is there a lick? Is there anything that he ever played that you go, I remember that? Yeah, absolutely. And and he's a great drummer, no question. Absolutely. But, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that's not a question. But Ringo was unique. Yep. Absolutely. And, and even the, oh. the next song that they discussed was uh, Another Girl. Another Girl. And, you know, when they isolate it, it's like Paul and Ringo are playing a country song, and they are locked yep. tight. The rhythm track is flawless. That's pretty straight country. That's sweet. Yeah. Yeah, I was thrilled that they brought in Another Girl. I think this is an underrated song. Yeah, I, I, I always I was, liked it. 
<laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, great, they're going to discuss this. Yeah. And their, and their observation about, well, first off, that Paul is being self-deprecating about playing the guitar there. You know, it's like, well, you can hear me sort of mess up at the end. And, uh, and then Rick Rubin's going, no, no, it's great. It's so cooking that you can't even play it. You know, the, the song is running away from you. I wish you'd been my teacher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and McCarty said the great line. Uh, That's me. I specialize in bold mistakes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's a great one that's a great section there mm-hmm. and to talk about that song it's like yeah it's completely underlooked from help yeah yep. and, and it, it also goes back to another thing that McCarty talked about how you know in the early days they'd go you know if you make a mistake and the producer doesn't say anything you don't say anything <laughs> so it's not a mistake so it's not a mistake if they accept it it's not a mistake me and Ringo kind of always knew, you know. It better be if, Yeah, if we don't get this right, this yeah. is going to be on the record. We've screwed it. It was kind of a little bit scary. You, you had to get it. Yeah. Early days, particularly, one of our things was, if the producer doesn't notice a mistake, it's not a mistake. You know, don't, sh- don't say anything. <laughs> you know. That's the rhythm. The next, we we sort of move into a little bit of wings. We always got to get a little bit of wings in there. This is the big live and let die segment. Oh, right. To keep with the theme, he talks a little bit about going to see Floyd doing Dark Side of the Moon. When was Dark Side of the Moon released? 72. So I don't know if that quite would have been when Wings was recording or not. Well, but seventy two would have been. I mean, yeah. he'd already released Ram and Wing Wildlife. So maybe he was recording Red Rose Speedway. When- he was probably working on stuff because I know that year was when High High High, those singles kind of came out because there was no album for a while. He tells a different version of an old story. Uh- I think the timing on things like the Bond films it had to be done before they'd done the film. So I read the book. I thought, well, I'll go back. I don't know how true they're going to be to the book, but I'll get that as my flavor. So I read the Ian Fleming book and wrote it the next day, I think, you know, very, quite quickly. And then got to George Martin, recorded it all up, did the final version. George did a, what we thought was a nice mix on it, which is the final mix. Then he took it out to the Caribbean where they were filming some stuff, or New Orleans, I think. I'm not sure, but somewhere out there. Foreign parts. And uh, one of the producers... Heard it and said, so well, it's a great demo, George. <laughs> when are you going to do the real one? So it's a pretty good demo. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. He, he would have been pissed off at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, he but describes you, the reggae bit as coming about because it's in the Caribbean. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, what does it matter to you? Completely unexpected. Because it was in the Caribbean. Yeah. You got to give the but he doesn't mention what he's said before is that it was really Linda that came up with the whole idea of doing a reggae bit in the middle. Uh. Th- this would actually genuinely be considered a co-write. Yeah. Yeah. Well, both could be true. Yeah. 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 It's you know to me it it's a cool record and it there's a story behind it in that George Martin produced it. And so 
it was a hit. And when it came time, there was a normal deal he had with EMI. And they said, well, this is, uh, this is still within your Beatles contract. And so the royalties were different. And he's going, there are no Beatles. <laughs> How can this be part of the Beatles company? He says, well, the contract's still in effect. And so, wow. <laughs> Cheap. Were you pleased with this? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a hard job to write a Bond thing. I took it on just because it's a big gig. Will you write the new Bond thing? Yes, I'll have a go. It's, it's kind of nice that he says uh, when they're talking that the end of uh, Live and Let Die is not an ending, you know, particularly when you compare it to what he was just saying before about Roy and about it's like, oh, you got to have a big ending sometimes. It's like. <laughs> but okay. he also says, you know, that, that chord is almost like, and now. So when you wrote it, it would be like. And it's, and it's not those. an ending. You know, it doesn't tell yeah. you something's over. No. It kind of tells you something's starting. I should have done. <laughs> and then it would have been the ending. ending. You know, for that, real. That would have been the thing. James Bond comes walking in, dressed as Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, I was glad that they addressed that, because I've always thought that was a fascinating part of the song, that there's that hanging, unresolved chord at the end. You know, I thought that was always a very interesting way. But yeah, that, and that's true. That could be kind of like, and now the story. You <laughs> know? The story, I mean, yes. That's, yeah, and, yeah, I mean, I wasn't surprised that they discussed Live and Let Die. I mean, it's a classic, in my opinion, if not the best Bond theme, one of the top three maybe i mean it's it's just I mean, what can i say you know so it, it was bound to come up as band on the run beget waterfalls in a previous episode live and let die brings us to check my machine, check my machine. that was a shocker <laughs> absolutely yeah. I, that's the one moment that i think nobody would have expected to happen right but i liked it because you know i had a discussion with a friend about McCartney 3, which he hates from beginning to end. Wow. And wrote me this long piece about how McCartney has let him down over the years. And I found myself going, you know, some of these recordings are not meant to be hit singles. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, they are very talented, creative guy playing around in the studio. And so, you know, as he said, Check My Machine is basically a groove. And that's what some of the songs on McCartney 3 are, kind of grooves. Just sit back and enjoy it. Except when Rick Rubin said, it's like jazz, I practically (laughs) said aloud, no, it isn't. (laughs) It's like jazz, really. You know, like repeating a... Uh, and phrase. I, yeah, phrase over and over, and like finding new and new ways to interpret it. Really interesting. Sorry, Rick. He gets it right with his other statement that, that there, there are certain phrases you hear once and and you never want to hear again, but <laughs> then others like 
obviously he's referring to like check my machine. Oh, you can just keep going and hear it over and over again. And I guess he's right. Yeah. <laughs> but you guys can quote me right now. The queen says, check my machine is not jazz. <laughs> <laughs> On my wall in my office, I have John Lennon's drawing about him <laughs> walking with Sean and so I comes up to him and goes, yeah, I've recently been getting into jazz and then character that's john says i've been trying to avoid it all my life (laughs) 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 it's not jazz (laughs) no let's let's just get that on the way right now (laughs) (laughs) you know paul's statement that uh, you just got to keep going to see if it kind of gets anywhere the story of the song becomes the vocal that actually says a lot about a number of different mccartney songs throughout his career yeah, we love to rag on Paul about his lyrics, but you know sometimes it really is just about okay. Let's just see whether we're going anywhere with it, and and by the time you get there, it's too late to to go back and make real words for it. Yeah, yep. And it's just so funny how I mean Paul just seems delighted that that you know that this is being brought up. I mean he's dancing around. I mean he just yeah. seems to be having a ball <laughs> listening to this. Yeah. He- he does. The enthusiasm for this is actually kind of surprising. I mean, you know, it's not the song I play most often. So his enthusiasm is, is quite joyous. You 
And then you know they they end with a with a little clip of, of you know my name look up the number again that's not a song that I want to spend that much time listening to but you know thank goodness it's not what a shame Mary Jane had a had a pain at the park now there's a song <laughs> three times yeah I'm done with 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 what a shame Mary oh. Jane but oh man you know my name okay I can keep going with that but she, but she didn't get the final mix. <laughs> <laughs> the, the final mix of what a shame is just amazing, especially <laughs> after George Martin got a hold of it. It was just <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> anyway. Oh my goodness! It would have been kind of interesting to hear Paul talk a little bit about you know my name, but uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know that was another moment and just forgot to mention when we were talking about dark side of the moon that was another moment where i thought could you say a little bit more paul when it was at that moment when rick rubin said when you were working on stuff did you ever get to hear what was going on in other studios and that's when he mentioned that he got to hear some of the recordings of dark side of the moon he just said yeah i got to hear it yeah that was it i just thought Really, you didn't press him on, and what did you think? I mean, this yeah. is Dark Side of the Moon you're talking about? I mean, <laughs> well, you know. You know there, uh, there's even more to that relationship that I'd be interested in, and that is in Hunter Davies' book, he mentions that Pink Floyd, came while I were recording Pepper, came in. and, and Oh, right. Because they worked with uh, Norm. And so they came in and got introduced you know so that's 67 the relationship may have been behind the scenes for quite some time you well know, then henry mcculloch was on uh, money right Floyd song money oh yeah so you know, yeah so a lot of the, they were running well again there. it's the it's the six degrees thing yeah, yeah. so so, yeah, there were just some moments like that in, in these episodes where I just thought, follow up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll be on the DVD. Oh, yeah, really. The, that's I not hope coming so. anytime soon. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, all right. Very good. We're done with this week. We've got two more parts that we're going to cover next week. Thank you, Kit, for joining us. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Oh, always a pleasure. Any Anytime you want me back, I'll be here. People can find you regularly on Talk More Talk every other Monday. I know you're doing a live show tomorrow on, guess what? <laughs> I, I know you can't guess what it could possibly be, but it will be on McCartney 321. <laughs> we we're going to be doing the whole thing. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, maybe not quite in as minute detail as we went into tonight, uh, but uh, but we're going to be doing the, the whole show. So, uh, so it'll be a lot of fun. So uh, you can join us uh, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow night, Jul- uh, July 26th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Yeah, that's the one thing that's never going to change about uh, when they was fab. We are going to do any extended box sets or documentaries, multi-part documentaries, to death. By the time we finish with it, you, you will not want to hear one more episode about that. Yeah, no, no, and you will love it. You will love it. And you will love it. And you will love it. We've, we're two-thirds of the way through, and I think we still have interesting comments on the last two pieces coming next week. Absolutely. I know. There's a lot to talk about here. It's a lot yeah. to cover. For sure. And new things. So Certainly enough to hold us over until we, uh, we do get the eventual uh, physical release maybe a year from now. <laughs> although I, right. i'm still i'm still hope, holding out uh that we may get a second season you know i if they film some more you know it doesn't seem like it's all that big an effort uh, you know paul and rick rubin can come together for two or three days and just knock out a series right well you know if it's so, you know, if it's successful it usually leads to another something yep so Fingers crossed. Very good. We'll be on the lookout for you, Kit. We can also find you uh, in Beetle Fan every issue and uh, anything else you want to. Oh, your book. Your book with Ken Womack. We we brought up Ken at the uh, beginning of the show. And, and you have a book from earlier. Was it earlier this year? Uh, yes. Um, it's uh, called The Act uh, You've Known for All These Years, uh, uh, Fandom and the Beatles which is a collection of uh, chapters from uh, various uh, Beatles scholars about uh, just that, about the history of fandom from first-generation fans up through today. That came out in March. And you can get it in paperback and on uh, Kindle. Do not get the hardcover. It's ridiculously overpriced. So just get the paperback and the uh, and the Kindle version. And, of course, you can always find me on uh, Twitter at Kiddo Tool and uh, KiddoTool.com. All right. Great. We'll be back next week. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California.
actually have certain phrases you can hear over and over again, and it's interesting. And there are other phrases you hear them three times and you never want yeah, to hear it again. It's just, uh, yeah. Who knows why? Like, yeah. And also, when you make this kind of recording, you're just gonna keep going with the check my machine thing yeah. to see if it kind of gets anywhere. Yeah. And. So in the end, the story of you trying to get somewhere yeah. becomes the vocal. Yeah. It's just like, oh, yeah. I thought I was going to just select that bit yes. and that bit, but it's kind of, it's kind of it, nice. It develops. Yeah. Yeah. It's like jazz, really. You know, like yeah. repeating a, a, an phrase. idea, yeah. phrase over and over, and like finding new new ways to interpret it. Really interesting. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. <laughs>